luckily so far, because of the past couple of weeks together, you already have some application points for how to grow as a woman. Maybe it's week one, we talked about feminism. And we talked about how this idea of feminism has influenced us in ways that we don't even really re- recognize. And you've realized, I've been really influenced by culture. I want to be more influenced by the word of God. And so you've been reminded, I want to be in scripture more. Or maybe it was week two, talking about Titus 2. We had so many practical applications from that week. And so maybe you, from our smart goal conversation and discussion groups, you already have ways to grow with hospitality or not slandering or loving people well. Or maybe it was last week with submission and complementarianism and just this idea of growing in amenability, this word that comes from amen or so be it. So you want to grow as a follower to be someone who submits to the Lord well and submits to the authorities in your life life well. But if not, if you're still kind of thinking, what should I do in light of all of this that we've been talking about, we're going to summarize all of that and talking about three main categories. The first being here, growing in your relationship with the Lord. That's the first one in your handout, the first fill in the blank. The second one is going to be growing in your relationship with others. There's a handout out here if you want it. And the final one being growing, at, growing as a witness to the world. So we're going to talk through those three categories. And to do this, we're going to talk through the different roles that we play in life. So daughter, sister, mother, wife, neighbor, those kind of things. And to start, we're going to start with the first one being growing in your relationship with the Lord as a daughter. And before we go into that, I want to take a second just to personally, each one of us, reflect on how we feel about the word daughter. For you, it might be a safe word. You had loving parents. It feels warm and secure, and it reminds you of a beautiful childhood. Or for you, maybe the word daughter is tense. It feels, it reminds you of your childhood that was a war zone. It reminds you of your parents who you feel estranged from, or a daughter that you don't talk to anymore, or you've lost your parents. And so the word daughter feels unstable. It feels dangerous. It's important to remember that our upbringings will influence our lives and how we hear certain things. And so we're going to look at what the scriptures say about the word daughter. And this is helpful too, because some of us, you know, you hear women talking about God as your good and loving father, and this is lovey-dovey kind of conversation. And you might hear that. You might have heard that your whole life and just wondered, what am I missing? Like something is off here. I don't, I don't get it. So let's see what scripture has to say about the word daughter. And to do this, we're going to look at this story. It's in Luke 8. If you want to flip there, you're welcome to. I'm going to do a little Bible story and tell you what happens in the story. So you don't have to flip there. But this is a story of two daughters. The first one is 12 years old. She's a little girl and she's sick. And her dad comes to Jesus. This is Luke 8, verses uh, 40 and on. Her dad comes to Jesus, and he's heard about Jesus being this healer, and he wants his daughter well. He loves her, and he wants her to be healed. And the second woman is much older. She's an outcast. She has been bleeding for the same amount of time that this little girl has been alive. She's been bleeding for 12 years. And we don't know why she was bleeding. We don't know the medical conditions behind that. But we do know that according to Levitical law, if you were bleeding, you were dirty. You weren't supposed to touch anyone. You were supposed to be outside the camp. You weren't supposed to go to birthday parties or weddings or festivals. And so that meant 12 years of isolation, 12 years of being separate 
and of being dirty. And so for 12 years, again, she had been isolated. Some of us with COVID, we've been isolated maybe 12 days. We've gone crazy. We've lost our minds. But this was 12 years of isolation. But one day, this woman heard that a teacher was coming to town. She heard that Jesus was coming, and she thought, my desire to be healed is greater than my fear of social condemnation. So she went out into this group to see Jesus. But the problem was, everyone else did too. There was a huge crowd, and it looked like Jesus was going to walk right past her. And she was desperate for healing. Again, she wasn't supposed to be in this crowd, but she had gone, and she thought, maybe if I just touch him, if I just reach out and touch him, maybe I'll be healed. And so she did. She touched him, and immediately her body stopped bleeding. Immediately, she knew that she was healed. And that would have been amazing enough. After 12 years, 12 years of bleeding, you can think about the loneliness, even the physical pain of bleeding for 12 years, the anemia, the tiredness as she probably felt, but also the isolation. For 12 years, now suddenly in touch, she's healed. But that's not all that Jesus did. He also then called her out. He said, who touched me? And no one, no one responded. And the disciples were there too. And they said, Jesus, a lot of people are touching you. It's this huge crowd. Everyone is pressing in, trying to touch you. But he knew, it says, Jesus knew that power had left him. And the woman knew that Jesus was calling her out. And so she came trembling before him, fear being a normal response to such amazing power. She came trembling before him, not knowing what he was going to do and not knowing what he was going to say. Was he going to condemn her? Was he going to say, you're not supposed to be here. You were dirty. She was probably used to that kind of outcast life. But instead, Jesus said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. This is not a woman that you would think that Jesus would call daughter. This is the only time actually that Jesus calls a woman daughter. And this woman, again, she was unclean. She was dirty. She was an outcast. And this is who God calls daughter. He says, you're mine. He says, I love you. I care for you. I see you. And when he did this too, when he called her out in public, he was letting everyone else around her know as well that she was now clean. He was not just healing her. He was calling her to community, calling her to those around her. And then in the story, we can't forget about the first daughter who was 12. And by the time that Jesus goes to the house, the little girl has died. Everyone's crying. Everyone's mourning and weeping. And Jesus goes to her and he touches her and he says, child, get up. And she's healed. And these are the words that God uses to describe daughter. When he saves us, he makes us his daughters. He brings us from death to life. He heals us. But he doesn't just do that. He restores us to community as well, to the local church. So in response to this, in response to the way that, that Jesus talks about daughter, how can we be growing in our relationship with the Lord? In your handout, I have growing in our worship of God and our obedience to him. So the first of that being worship. And when I say worship, I mean not just this external, praise your hands, you know, raise your hands, sing the songs, although that is a part of it for sure. I mean this internal reverence and submission and love and trust of God. So practically speaking, do you believe that the creator of the whole universe, the one who gives each of us breath each moment, who knows all of the hairs on her head, who created everything in this world, 
Do you believe that he knows you, that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he sees you? Do you view him as a father who is this harsh taskmaster, constantly disappointed, constantly wanting you to do better and to be better and to never living up, never meeting the bar? Or do you see him as a loving father who sees you, who heals you, who brings you from death to life, who loves you? Listen to how scripture defines your new identity in Christ. This is Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite us to all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. This is a beautiful picture of our adoption, right? We have been adopted. We have been called daughters. We have been lavished with forgiveness and grace and love. We have been forgiven. We have redemption by his grace. There's nothing you can do to earn God's love, and there's nothing you can do that will take away his love from you. You already have it. There's not a list of rules that you have to, to live up to to finally win the love and the approval of the Father, it's yours in Christ forever, and nothing can shake that. He loves you because he's love. And so to grow in our worship, we can grow in our love, trust, and worship of God. Secondly, in obedience. If we love God, we obey him, right? We talked about this week one with Romans 12, how we are to be transformed in his image. And maybe, again, this is where all the summers come together, all the summer sessions come together, of being in the word. Maybe because you love God and you want to obey him, you realize, I want to be in the word more. I want to know him more to know how to obey him. Or maybe you want to let scripture influence who you date and what you wear and what you use your time for, what you think about, all of those things, and let scripture define that. Or maybe for you, it's Titus 2 and thinking, I want to invite a younger gal and pour into her. I want to find someone who's doing something better than me I see her using her words to build up. I want to go to her and ask for her help to grow in that area or how she loves her husband or her children or how she, whatever it is, grows in hospitality. I want to go to her and grow in that area. That would be a great application point as well. But if you're a Christian, if the love of God has transformed your soul and your life, does your life reflect that? Can others see that? Are you living in accordance to that? Are you growing in your love for God and for others? And this has been a big theme of the summer as well, is not letting our internal dialogue or our anxious thoughts define what's true, but letting the word of God define what's true. So one way we can grow in a relationship with the Lord is worship of God and obedience of God and, how, and obedience to God. And how do we know how to obey him? It's through the word. All right, secondly, we can grow in our relationship with others. Your next fill in the blank. And to talk about this, we're going to talk about as sisters first. 
If you don't have biological sisters, that's okay. You're in a room full of sisters, of spiritual sisters, of co-heirs with Christ. And we can grow in our relationships with one another in two categories, mainly unity and friendship. The first being unity. Sometimes being a sister can be stressful. It can be hard. You have the spectrum of maybe you're intimidated by some sisters thinking they are so spiritual. They have it all together. I could never even, they know how to pray right. They know how to do all the things right. I don't even know how to talk to them. Or maybe in the other spectrum, someone's really difficult to love. They're prickly. You don't like the way that they laugh. Their personality gets on your nerves. They're hard to love for a number of reasons. People can be difficult and we can judge them. And we don't just judge them. We talk about them behind their backs. Sometimes in the Christian world, we do this in veiled prayer requests, right? Like, will you pray for so-and-so? She's going through blah, 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 blah. Or maybe it's less subtle and it's more, can you believe what she said? Can you believe what she did? Can you believe what she's wearing? We gossip. This unity is not, it's not a new thing. It has existed from the fall. And in the book of Philippians, Paul says this. He says, I entreat Yodia and Syndike to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and all the rest of the fellow workers. Paul's basically saying here, he's saying, there's these two women who are fighting. We don't know why. We don't know what they did. But whatever they did was bad enough to make it into scripture for all eternity. And Paul is calling them out and he's saying, agree, agree in the Lord. They were once working side by side for the sake of the gospel. And now for whatever reason, they're fighting. And Paul's telling his friend, he's saying to help them, help them get along, help them to put one another above themselves. That's a big theme of Philippians is unity and joy. Be of one mind, one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel doing nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. And that's what he's saying here. And it was happening even in, even in Old Testament and New Testament times. And it can happen to the best of us, disunity. You know, so many churches and families have been destroyed by women who just can't agree. And again, we're tying everything together. So maybe for you, you hear that and you think about how you use your words. Are you using them to build up? Or are you using them to tear down? Let's not be like these women who were fighting and in this way kind of disrupting the unity of the gospel, but women who build one another up and encourage one another in faith. What does this look like? It looks like friendship. It looks like showing up. It looks like being present, asking good questions. It looks like vulnerability. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard the phrase, I'm different. Like there's no one here like me at Grace. And the secret is everybody feels that way. Everybody is feeling different. And we build these impenetrable walls that nobody can, can come through. Nobody can touch you. You can't touch anybody else because you're different. Maybe you feel more holy than the other people. Maybe there's no one that looks like you or no one that's your age or at your school or your life stage. But again, everyone's looking this, feeling this way. And part of growing in unity with our sisters is growing in this vulnerability and being honest and transparent with a few safe people. It's celebrating the differences of sisters around you with different gifts, with different life stages, with different cultures and different backgrounds, and being patient and gracious, communicating instead of letting resentment grow. At the same time, true sisters look out for one another. 
And so if they see you walking down this dangerous path and they see where this is going and they say, that's really going to hurt you, a good sister calls that out. And so when someone does that to you, if someone does that to you, don't cut them off. Recognize that maybe they see something that you don't. And that is actually a sign of, of a good sister. But on the flip side, as sisters, we don't just call each other out for sin. We also affirm what's beautiful. We see what God is doing and we affirm that and we want to build others up in that. Again, like we talked about with Titus 2, this can be a good reminder for thankfulness to see what God is doing in someone's life and affirm that. Maybe if someone's driving you crazy, maybe especially if someone's driving you crazy, find something that the Lord is doing in their life and one step further, tell them about it. Go up to them and that's a good practice for our hearts too to check areas that we're becoming bitter and find ways to turn that, that criticism into praise of the Lord. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, if we don't admire what's praiseworthy, we should be stupid, insensible, and great losers. So let's not be losers. Let's encourage one another and build one another, another up in the Lord. Next on the growing in your relationship with others and the handout is as a wife. We've talked a lot about marriage over the past couple of weeks, but just as a reminder, marriage does not make you a woman. It does not make you complete. You are fully woman and fully complete now in the Lord. You don't need marriage for your life to start. Marriage is a gift, and it's one of the sweetest gifts that I've ever been given, but so is the gift of singleness, and Scripture highlights that with the lives of men and women like Mary and Martha and Paul and Lydia and even Jesus himself who was single. Scripture says, this is Isaiah 54, 5. It says, the maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And that's not just like a, a trite saying, like Jesus is your husband. The Lord is your husband. It's not just something, a nice thing to make you feel better. This is a promise. This is, this is from Scripture to say you are protected. You are seen. You are loved. You are known. The Lord is your husband. You are taken care of. You have all that you need. And if you're married, we've talked about this a bunch with some practical applications, but Thanksgiving being one of them, we can often nag as wives. And instead of nagging, turning that into thankfulness, encouraging your husband, letting him lead, building him up into the man that God has him to be. And so as we talk about this, as we close with this section, I wanted to talk about the story of Abigail in the Bible. This is from 1 Samuel 25. And in it, there was this woman named Abigail. And scripture says she was beautiful and she was smart. But her husband, Nabal, was mean and surly, it says in scripture. Basically, he was a fool. He was badly behaved. And he was harsh. And one day, David, who was this military giant, he had been together with Nabal's men, you know, in the land. They had been looking out for each other and protecting each other. And David goes to Nabal and he says, hey, can I join you? Can my men and I join you for this feast that's coming up? And Nabal's a fool. And he says, who's David? And why should I give my food to him? And culturally, this would have been very inappropriate at that time anyways, because hospitality was such a big thing. But he was saying this not to just any man. He was saying this to a military beast. He was saying this to David, who had killed so many. And this makes David really mad. And he says he's going he's gonna to go kill all the men of this, of this town. 
his wife Abigail hears what's going on, and she acts. And she very quickly, she goes to David, and she brings him figs and food and wine, and she begs for his mercy. And David does. He says, okay, I won't kill, I won't kill the men, but if you hadn't come, know that I would have, <laughs> that they were gone. And because she acted quickly and wisely and smartly, she saved her family. And this is what we talked about a little bit last time with submission, how we can be faithful in our roles, even if our husbands aren't. This is a good example of that, of her being faithful, even with a foolish husband. We talked about how no one has to be upset but the baby. And that's a common phrase that my husband and I tell each other all the time when things are going crazy. Even if that's going crazy, you don't have to be upset by it. No one has to be upset by the baby. Meaning, again, like when I, when I had little babies and I couldn't put them to sleep and they were crying and screaming, it's really easy to get stirred up and frustrated. But nobody has to be upset but them. I can remain faithful in what the Lord has called me to, even if the babies are crazy or even with the foolish husband like Abigail had here. Scripture says that a wise woman builds up her home, but a foolish one tears it down. We can tear it down with our words, with our actions, with our attitudes, constantly criticizing, constantly just being nagging, or we can build up. Scripture also talks about a woman who's not afraid of tomorrow, but who laughs at the days to come, knowing she can laugh because she knows that God's in control. We talked about this last week with 1 Peter 3, how we don't have to fear anything that's frightening, that there really are frightening things, but we don't have to be afraid because we know God is in control. True beauty starts on the inside, and so biblical womanhood is this call to courage and faith. I'm reading this, this biography right now on Susanna Spurgeon, and it's called Susie, and it has been a really great example and a good reminder to me. Susie was Charles Spurgeon's wife, who was a, a very famous, amazing preacher, and he was in high demand. He was one of the most famous men of the world at that time, and so some weeks he would preach 12 times a week, and he would write hundreds of letters by hand to people around the world, and he traveled a lot because he was, again, in high demand. And his wife, Susie, was homebound most of her life. She had twins, and around that time, she had an emergency surgery that went poorly. And we don't know exactly what happened, but she was sick the rest of her life. She couldn't often leave the house. And uh, so she couldn't go to church. She couldn't travel with him. She was home. It would have been super easy for Susie to grow bitter, bitter at the Lord, to think, how come he gets to go off there doing all these grand things for the Lord and I'm home? Or to become bitter at her husband. Like, how come all of these people get so much access to you? And I don't. Like, you're always there serving everybody else and traveling, but what about me? But she wanted to be faithful to where the Lord had her, and she, she was. She was a beautiful example of that. She, per her husband's suggestion, started this foundation, this book foundation, where she would mail hundreds, if not thousands, of books to poor pastors around the world. And she supported her husband at home who struggled a lot with depression, deep depression. There's lots of books that have been written about Charles Spurgeon and his depression. But Susie, in her memoirs, she would say that she would read to her husband when he was in the dark moods. And she would read to him, and she would hold him, and she would weep with him because she loved him. She was stable. She was constant. She was praying for him. She was weeping with him. And they had meager lives. They weren't rich. Ministry life, lives are usually not rich. And Charles went through a bunch of controversies in his life, one of which was called the downgrade controversy. And he was holding firm to scripture and not everyone was. And people started withholding their financial support. And so one case, 
Her husband was a thousand miles away. He was traveling. And she got news that someone had just pulled support. She wrote to her husband and she said, I want you to know that this happened, but I want you to know that I'm laughing because I know that God is the one who will take care of us. And he wrote her back and he said, I laugh with you. This is a beautiful example. They had a beautiful marriage. They would write letters back and forth to one another and he would leave her. It said that, you know, he would say goodbye to her, get on the train and pick up his pen and write, my dearest Susie, I miss you already. They had this beautiful marriage. But again, she wasn't at home panicking, anxiously wondering, how are we going to pay the bills? What's going to happen? I think it's time for you to get out of ministry. It's time to become a plumber. Plumbers are safe, you know, or you are so charismatic. You could have done anything. Why don't you become a government official because they have more perks. She wasn't saying, get out. She was trusting the Lord and she was being faithful and she was encouraging her husband in the the ways that the Lord has equipped him and gifted him. That's a big encouragement to me. She was laughing at the future. Again, because she trusted God. She wasn't fearing what was frightening because she knew that God controls her future. And so as biblical wives, we can grow in trusting the Lord too trusting that God will take care of us, and he's enough. He'll take care of us. There's a funny story, too, just about the influence that we have as wives. This is not a political statement, but there was a story of Barbara Bush and her husband, George, when they were on the campaign trail, and they were on the farms. And he, you know, they're driving by. He sees a man on a tractor, and he says, if you had married him, you'd be living on a farm. And she laughed, and she said, no, no. If I married him, He would be running for the president of the United States. And so point of the story being, we have great influence as wives. Are we using it to equip our husbands and help them to become the men that God made them to be? Or are we tearing them down? We can all grow in this. And then next on our handout, we can grow in our relationships with others as mothers. This is not just physical, biological or adoptive mothers. This is as spiritual moms. This is something that, unfortunately, we do need to say um, in our talk about gender that God gave women wombs. This is actually currently being debated in the world. We defined women the first week as adult females, and God gave us wombs. And part of that is so that we can nurture life and be fruitful. And so one of the ways that we can grow as biblical women is in this, in mothering. Again, we're going to talk in a second. It's not just biological or adoptive mothering. It's spiritual mothering. But biological or adoptive mothering is really important too. My husband recently, a couple of months ago, he sent me this article. And it's a Babylon Bee article that he knew I would identify with. And it says this. It says, I accomplished nothing today, says mom who spent all day nurturing infinitely precious human souls. An article goes on just basically to say it's, It's very funny and very timely, and I very much resonated with it, where as American women, we can think the best job is out there. Everything good is out there. Being home, that doesn't count. That's that's meaningless. It doesn't count as real work. But it is of infinitely, we're we're nurturing infinitely precious human souls. And this is a really important job. Susan Hunt says it like this, whether, again, with, with biological or adoptive children or spiritual mothering, she says, we need to infuse this sense of community and identity in the children in our churches. We need to understand, we need them to understand that Christians are a minority and that they must learn to think biblically about their convictions rather than just social skills or sports or popularity or designer clothes and so forth. 
having top priority, we need to shape our children into kingdom people. We need to instill our children a vision for going into culture with a biblical worldview. We need to teach them to go up against materialism and relativism every day. They're not to be shaped by culture. They're to be shapers of culture. Women can rock our world by rocking our babies. As grandmothers, too, this is really important that God can use us, whether as moms or as grandmothers. You know, in the story of Timothy, for example, First Timothy, it says that his mom and his grandmother are the ones who led him to faith. This is of infinite value. His dad and his grandfather are not mentioned, presumably not Christians, but his mom and his grandmother are the ones who led him to faith, and it's of an internal value. But what if either you don't have children, you are married, and you would love to get pregnant for whatever reason, the Lord has not opened that door for you now, you're having a hard time getting pregnant, or what if you're single and you just want to get married? You can't even imagine having kids right now. You're looking for for a man. What then? How can you still be faithful to the Lord now? First, let's talk about if you're married and you're wanting to have kids or for whatever reason, you're not able to get pregnant. We've had our own journey in this. Um, Actually, I was reading my emails this week to my parents when we were living in Indonesia and we had gone through a couple of miscarriages and I was writing my parents. I I forgot how much I was longing for that. I can't put into words the heartbreak that it was. We were in another country. We were dealing with doctors who were Indonesian and third world doctors, and it was tough. It was definitely tough because they would tell me one thing. I would email my uncle who was in the States, who is a doctor specializing in problem pregnancies. And I would say, this is what they said. Is this true? And he would say, no, (laughs) that's not true. Don't trust that. And I was kind of feeling stuck. Like some of them would say, well, if you meant to get pregnant, it would happen. Others of them would say, no, you have to do this, that, and the other. And I didn't know. And so I was, again, third world country, far from family, far from support, wanting to get pregnant and feeling like God was absent, feeling like I was abandoned. And it's easy in this season of life to feel that way, to think that God somehow gives life, but he is quiet about the details of either miscarriage or infertility, but that's simply not true. In scripture, It's interesting, but many of the matriarchs of the faith struggled with infertility. You have Sarah, who married Abraham, and she didn't have a baby till she was almost 100 years old. And it's actually said that a lot of her tantrums in Scripture are because of that. It's because of her barrenness. She knew God had this amazing call on her husband's life, and it was dependent on her having a baby. She couldn't couldn't get pregnant. And so she said, hey, Abraham, you know, sleep with my, my maid, and that caused all kinds of drama. And then her daughter-in-law, Rebecca, also struggled with infertility for a season. And her daughter-in-law, Rachel, also struggled with infertility. That's not to mention famous examples like Hannah and Elizabeth. The scriptures are full of examples of women crying out to the Lord for a child. And God is not quiet. God hears our cries. He listens to us. We don't know why. For some reason, sometimes he allows longings to go unfulfilled, but we can trust that he's good, that he has good plans. He does have the power to open up the womb. And when he doesn't, when he doesn't answer our prayers like we expect, we can trust he is still good. Within this as well, we can never underestimate the power of spiritual mothering. This is from Isaiah 54. It says, Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child, 
burst into song, shout for joy, you who never were in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. And that goes into the second point. Whether you have biological or adoptive children or not, we are all called to spiritually mother those around us. And this goes to discipleship. This talks about discipleship. A couple of summers ago, Danelle did a talk on discipleship during the summer series. Those were online. They were phenomenal. If you're wondering what does this look like, you can listen to them later. But scripture is also full of women who were not biological moms to those that they became spiritual mothers of. Thinking about Deborah, who was in the Old Testament, a strong woman used in military battles. And it says that she became the mother of all Israel. We don't know. Did she have biological children or not? We're not sure, but she became the mother of all of Israel. Or we can think of Romans 16, 13, when Paul says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother too, who's been a mom to me. As we spiritually mother those who are younger in the faith, we're fulfilling the Lord's desires, his commands for our lives. And it's not just this one-way thing where we're constantly pouring ourselves out, for another and just constantly pouring out, it becomes this relationship where we become spiritual moms and they become spiritual daughters. And we encourage one another. We pray for one another. We, yes, are pouring ourselves out, but we're also being blessed. The Lord blesses us as we serve others, but also spiritual daughters can also pour into their, their spiritual moms. I love the story as well of Amy Carmichael with this. Amy Carmichael was a missionary and she was Irish. She was an Irish missionary, but she, though she was single, never had any kids, she was called the mother of all India. This young Irish girl became the mother of all India. She, uh, it was said when she was younger, she got in trouble a lot. She was a troublemaker. And as she grew up, she got this passion and burden for the poor. So she went overseas, um, first to Japan, I believe, and then to India. And while she was there, she had an incredibly difficult life, but she rescued thousands of young girls from being trafficked into prostitution in the temples. At the time, what happened was poor moms, poor parents in India who couldn't feed their children, they would sell their kids to these temples. And they would be married to the temple priests, but eventually they'd become prostitutes at the temples. And Amy saw what was going on, And she started rescuing the children from from that environment. But one girl, Prina, what's her name? Prina heard she was a prostitute. She actually tried to run away once, and she was captured. And so they brought her back, and they hot-branded her with an iron so she would always be marked. But she heard about Amy, and she heard about this woman who was rescuing girls. And she thought, maybe if I run away again, maybe if this time I can go find this lady, maybe then I can be safe. And so she ran away, and she found Amy Carmichael, And Amy took her in, knowing full well she could have gone to jail. She could have been killed for this. This was against the law at the time, against cultural customs. But she she did that. And soon enough, her reputation started to grow. So parents, instead of dropping them off at the temples, would drop them at Amy's house. And she started collecting all of these children who were poor, who didn't have a family that they could take care of. And she became spiritual mothers to them, a spiritual mother to them. And her reputation grew so much that eventually the temples nearby started to hear about her and they were saying, we don't want her to come in anymore. She's just going to take the girls. And so she wasn't allowed in, but she went so far as to stain her skin and her hair with tea bags and with coffee. 
which would have taken a long time. But she would stain her skin so that this Irish girl could look Indian so she could enter into the temples. And she, again, became the mother of India. This woman who also didn't have an easy life, she struggled with sickness a lot, being constrained to her bed for weeks at a time. The last, I think it was the last 20 years of her life, she was bedridden because of a fall. She would write, she would pray, and she would rescue these girls from being temple prostitutes. She persevered through sickness, through fear. It is tough being a missionary nowadays in third world countries. Cannot imagine then. And division and conflict and danger, again, sickness, all of these things. She persevered because she knew that her biggest, that she was living for the Lord. She wasn't living to win the approval of men, but of God. And she faithfully preached the gospel to others in word and deed. And so, again, Amy being this beautiful example of spiritual mothering, even though she was a single girl who never had biological children. And as women, we're we're called to nurture life. We're called to be life givers. Whether or not we have children, God is not waiting on you to get married to use you. He can use you now. And then last on our list, number three, is growing as a witness to the world. I have in here on your outline, as you see some personal application, just questions and spaces just to reflect. How are you loving and pouring into the lives of those around you? How do you want to grow in your love for the Lord and your obedience to his word? Be great to to do later. But this final one being growing as a witness to the world. So far, every, every word that we've used, every role has been feminine. So if you want to write here, neighbor, you could, or you could do la vecina, which is, you know, the Spanish were feminine neighbors. But either way, as women and as neighbors, we have a unique opportunity to influence the world around us, our spheres of influence as daughters and sisters and wives and children and neighbors. We can help beautify the world around us relationally and physically. We can be lights in a dark world. And so for this last one, the question being, who are your neighbors and how can you point them to Jesus? They might be your physical neighbors. They might be your next door neighbor. Might be your roommates, might be your parents, might be your children or your husband, your coworkers. But who is in your sphere of influence and who can you point to Jesus? What would that look like? In our discussion groups, we'll also talk through this more and kind of work this through. What would this look like for your own life? But again, we're called to be a bold witness to the world and the world needs the hope of Jesus. At the same time, we need to be aware that we are also influenceable. We can bring influence, but we're also influenceable. And so this is what we talked about week one with, um, it was 2 Timothy 3, 6, and 7. We're talking about how weak-willed women at the time were being led astray by false doctrine. And we said, we don't want to be like those weak-willed women. We want to be strong women who are rooted in the word of God. And so as we are being a witness in the world, we need to be careful of how culture is influencing us not just with feminism, like we talked about the first week, but in all kinds of cultural ideas. The Christian life often being like this. We come to church on a Sunday. We hear an amazing message. We sing great songs. We have godly conversations. And then we go out. We go to our workplace. We go to our families. We go out into the the real world, in quotes, real world. And we're bombarded with messages. And sometimes we might connect with Christians throughout the week and be reminded, okay, this is normal. God's word is is my truth. This is my foundation. Hopefully, we're in the word each day to remind us of what's real, of what's true, but we're being bombarded constantly. 
And so when we come back together, we should be reminding each other, don't, don't believe the lies. Don't believe the lies that the lies that culture is trying to persuade you of, that your worth is based in your body, that your identity is based in your sexuality, that your dignity is based in your career or your marital status or what people think of you, all things that can change in an instant. Our identity is based in the Lord and we're stable only in him. And so we need to, yes, influence the world and also recognize that we're influenceable and so be firmly rooted in community and in the world and in the word, not the world. Okay, so on that note, we are gonna wrap up this time together. Again, we've talked about how we can grow in our relationship with the Lord, with others, and as a witness in the world. And just to close the same way we did the first week, our ultimate goal this whole summer, talking about biblical womanhood, our ultimate goal is not to be biblical woman. women, it's to worship Jesus. And being a biblical woman, just one way to do that. It's one way to worship Jesus, and it's an important way. But we serve a Savior who was perfect on our behalf. We're never going to do this perfectly. And so the goal in all of these things is to help us to grow. It's not to say, here's the bar, you need to be perfect, but it's to say, worship Jesus more, and here's how we can be growing in these areas. So in our discussion times, we'll break that through a little bit more, but the hope of the summer being to help us become women who know God's word, who are transformed less by the anxious spirals of anxiety and thoughts and cultural views that constantly bombard us, but by the word of God.